Welcome to the PT Student Center. I am your host, Dr. Sarah Falbo, and I'm a new grad DPT helping physical therapy students just like you get through school on their first try debt free. All right. Welcome to another episode of the PT Student Center, everybody. My name is Sarah Falbo, and today I have Frank Benedetto on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm pumped to chat with you and hear more about your backstory and kind of dive back into PT school. So the first question I ask everybody is what got you into PT in the first place? Oh, I love that question. So I broke my femur when I was Mm. 16 years old, had a displaced uh, fracture of my femur distal, pretty brutal injury, to be honest with you. My foot was like rotated 180 degrees. So when they carried me off the football field, Uh, my foot, there's, there's like a VHS tape and I'm like dating myself here. There's a VHS tape of me getting carried off and my foot is literally like maybe 160, you know, pointing uh, wrong direction. Um, and my experience with that wasn't actually very good. So I, I healed really quickly from that made the recovery. And then in my second baseball game back after like a six month recovery of my broken leg, I tore my meniscus, which I don't believe I tore at all in that moment. It was probably missed from the original injury and then had to go through another surgery and then never returned to sports. So it was my junior year of football that I I broke it. And then I never returned to sports and I had a lot of regrets around that. But that experience is what led me to want to become a doctor of physical therapy. So did you have physical therapy post-injury? I did. Yes. And what was your experience with it? I think that my experience was love them, love them as people, still love them as people. Yet in retrospect, there was more that could have been done towards the tail end or more related to my sports. Mm. So the, but interestingly enough too, and I, I still actually can't piece this together. So a lot of times when you interview somebody who's a little bit further along than you, at least the perception of that the person further along has masterfully put together like this is how it all happened exactly timeline it's all constructed half the stuff is random half the stuff is strategy the the one thing i don't actually know why i stumbled upon this but in my application letter to kane university which is where i went for my graduate degree uh, undergrad degree i said that i was applying to the field of psychology for my undergrad because I sensed that there's something missing from the field of physical therapy where we were not incorporating enough, what I termed at that age, positive psychology into rehab. And I think even though I had a great experience, there was still something in me as a 16, 17 year old kid that was like, there's something really missing from this process as a whole. And that really you know, inspired the trajectory of my career. So you were a junior in high school when you stopped your sports? Yes. Oh, man. Okay. And then so from that point on, you're like, huh, I'm going to go into undergrad, go for psychology. Did you think you were going to continue after that? Yes, I I had entered knowing that I was going to do an undergrad in psych with a doctorate in physical therapy. Okay. To combine the two uh, of in some capacity, the skill sets. Okay. And did you ever use the psychology? Daily. Daily. I mean, in terms of like between undergrad and grad school. Oh, no, 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 no. I okay. did a three-year three program. So I did three years of undergrad and then three years of grad school. 
Ah, see, there we yeah. go. I love those. That's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. So how was your transition? I know it's a little different because it was a three plus three program, but how was your transition from undergrad quote unquote into grad school? Well, there's a, another surgery that took place in this exact time frame that shaped the way that graduate school started. So I had, I'm going to use the terms from back when I was there. I was driving and I hit a bump in my shoulder to like dip and be like, oh, what is this? Like it would, it would sublux, you know, I would feel like it popping. Right. So I would go to the doctor and I was like, yeah, it feels like my shoulder's popping or something. And they're like, oh, you have a labrum tear. You definitely need that operated on. And, uh, and I'll, I'll show you, this is my non-operative arm. So here's my, try to give you, try not to thoracic. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to compensate too much here. Beautiful but okay, range so of motion. That. Now that's good. That was right. You proof. Yeah, that's great. Here's this side. Oh, okay. So that's for those all of you listening. External, and this is all I got internal. For anybody just listening, my right side has basically 30 or 40 degrees of external rotation. My, my, and maybe about 10 to 15 degrees of internal rotation. So that surgery and the shitty physical therapy that occurred right after it removed basically the function of my right shoulder for anything overhead. And that's when I started to take a little bit of a turn towards this profession that I fell in love with, with from my from my broken leg rehab was like this kind of incredible you know full leg cast tiny little leg these pins sticking out of external fixators pulled them out and then like I'm back running I mean this is amazing and then and then the meniscus there was like oh wait what could they I'm sure it was fine yeah and then when this happened, and then just a year or two later now in PT school, I learned what should have been done, the prehab or the rehab that could have been done, that likely if I had just gotten strong, I would not have needed my surgery. Because I'm not an overhead athlete. I wasn't playing baseball or swimming at some super competitive level. All I needed was to get stronger in my shoulder at that juncture. And, I, and no one in my world, as far as a medical providers did that. So I entered PT school pretty skeptical now. So now I'm like, I love this profession. I hate this profession. I love this profession. I don't really trust too many clinicians. And I think it was actually a really healthy thing. I think that that as long as that doesn't go too far where you, you can't trust anyone, I, I do think that we need actually more people challenging the status quo. And I've reached a level of acceptance with my personal injuries that that was required for me to have sort of a nonconformist attitude, which if you follow me at all on social media, you're like, yeah, 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 you're nonconformist. So, but that, that was like the baby roots of it back in PT school. So now that you entered into PT school, after all of this, you're a little skeptical and all of that has just happened to you. Um, what was the transition like? In terms of the academics, especially because some people don't know what a three plus three is. Maybe we should backtrack a yeah. little bit. Yeah. How was that academic transition in your three plus three to the grad school portion of your program? When I dedicate myself to something, I'm psychotically focused. So I basically didn't drink alcohol for most of my college career. I, mean, I was like, wow. I, was I definitely drank more alcohol in my 30s than I did in my 20s. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that's good or bad or not, but the but the reality is, is that I was so incredibly focused that it, it wasn't that challenging for me, but I had, I think because of my love of psychology though, I had dedicated a lot of energy and time to trying to understand how my brain works 
and and in all different ways. You know, so I'm somebody who really needs adventure and outdoors. I say needs, like my mental health depends on it now and back then. So I would like in undergrad, I would stack my schedule. I'd have a super long day and the next day I'd go golfing. So I was working really hard, but I always had sort of an inherent natural tendency to spend a lot of time outdoors. And I also uncovered like what study techniques worked for me. I was not a group study person. That was the worst thing you could do to me. Instead, it was note cards and a very specific style of studying those note cards, you know, that that really worked for me. Um, so I would say it was stressful, but I felt like I always did have a handle on it. Okay. And so for those people listening who don't know what a three plus three is, and yours might have been set up a little differently. What was yeah. your three plus three program like? Three years of undergrad. And then the fourth year was technically my first year of PT school. So I didn't technically graduate from undergrad until after my first year of PT school. Then I went back to Kane just for the ceremony. And then I had graduated with my undergrad once those credits have applied. And then there were still two years left of PT school. Yeah. And then two years later, you get your doctorate, even though yeah. you had already been in the PT program for that first year. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then as you head into finishing PT school and new grad life, what did you think you were going to do as a PT? Hmm. That's a really good question. So the this is where the roots, and this is very vulnerable. Actually, I don't think I've ever shared this part of it because usually oh. the questions are more around like, what I'm doing now. Oh yeah, we'll get but to it. <laughs> I no no, I'm I'm totally happy because I believe that your audience is actually more served based off of that transition. My my clinical rotations made me believe that magic hands were real. Oh. I believe that I knew how to mobilize someone's sacrum. I believe that I was able to mobilize someone's, you know, thoracic spine in a way where it would create an alignment and a lot of these narratives now that are no longer supported by research and are not necessarily the healthiest for practitioners. Now, I'm not saying to not use manual therapy ever. I understand that there's lots of different contexts that need to get applied through different cases. Somebody in chronic pain and uh, super guarded, very low body awareness, traumatic experiences with their body or with healthcare providers, manual therapy could literally almost work miracles in the in the sense of the change it could create but a lot of cases more traditional cases the typical person coming to pt does not really need that much manual therapy and if they do the context and the way in which we use it is so extraordinarily different than when i first graduated i graduated in 2008 and for the first 4 years of my career i would say almost everything i said is i would say now is bullshit without knowing it, you know, that, that it was uh, upper cross, lower cross syndrome, but explained in this way that was just beyond the bell curve of truth. There is still, I believe, validity to that if you have neck pain and you sit in this position for X period of time and that position is related to your neck pain, then I do believe that some of the fundamental values of working towards, you know, like aspects of this, these theories that are now outdated still can reign true. You could still pull in thoracic spine mobility work and strengthening someone's upper back, which arguably are part of upper cross. But the theory when it's taken to its extreme and during my early days, at least the clinics I was exposed to, 
really promoted the extreme leg length discrepancies, uh, you know, subluxations and craniosacral therapy to, you know, again, in a certain narrative, maybe there's a case for that, but not in the narratives I had. So honestly, I had thought that I was a manual therapist and that my skill set was in my hands. And did you work in outpatient primarily then? Yes. So I had um, two of my four rotations were outpatient and one was neuro um, and then the other one was acute. So obviously those that didn't apply, but I went into PT school knowing I was going to be outpatient. Okay. So I got those out of the way first and then I finished with my two and I took a job at one of the locations that I did my internship that was extraordinarily manual therapy heavy. Would you say your first job out of PT school was your dream job at the time? Yes. Mm, okay. What made it your dream job back then? Uh, I was given one hour, pretty much 45 minutes to one hour with every single client. Like one-on-one. -on -one. I was told what to do during those 45 minutes to an hour. There was expectations around billing and around the narratives that were to be set around the plan of cares. What would be an example? Like, so let's say you have an hour, 45 minutes to an hour with this one patient. Um, what would be an example of maybe the limitations that you had within that hour or the yeah. expectations? So I'll, I'll give uh, a, the framework that tends to be throughout all of outpatient is this. If, if it's in this category of, of type of clinic, it is start off with your heat and stim some form of manual therapy for one, two, or three units, ultrasound, every single client. Then one, two, or three units of Therex, depending on how many you did of manual therapy, usually trying to get to four skilled units, and then concluding again with another stim and ice on repeat forever. On repeat for four years at the same place? Yes. And when did you leave it and why did you leave it? I left once I, there's a, there's loads of reasons. And again, I do want to preface that I don't want this to become slander. That, no, um, of course not. But the, the general state of, of orthopedics is still relatively unchanged. Most people that I talk to are still going through something like this. So speaking to the general population, I started to, evolve my thought process through self-education, not CEUs. Now, now there are good CEU courses out there, but back in 2012 to 15, which is like around when I started getting, making my exit, they're really like the CEUs were just repeating dogma from PT school or repeating outdated dogma. So where I started to actually have my clinical existential crisis, which is what I call that phase is uh, is through resources like like what was formerly known as Level Up, Level Up Initiative for, with Zach Gabor, Quinn Hennock, who started Clinical Athlete. They they since merged, now they're Kalu, Clinical Athlete, Level Up. And when I started to meet those guys and they started to expose newer research that has not yet made it to PT schools, because it does take about a decade for newer research to get into curriculums or more. So we're talking about the curriculums are still not updated, really. I think there's certain programs that are more in tune based off of what professors they bring in or adjuncts. But it was like reading these narratives, like, 
what is this thing called? No, no Kibo, no C, no, no Cibo, no Cibo. What is that? I only heard a plus Cibo. And then go, holy shit, what? And then they're like, you can't, you don't even know what to say during that first phase because you're just like, I don't know what's real. Like, and this is where the joking, and this is what really bothers me. But in in rehab right now, the running joke is like nothing matters, right? So it's like because we're still in this really conflicted, like we can sublux your T3 to like we super specific, like if we mobilize your left lateral anterior to posterior, like that the reality is is that that specificity is likely not going to be supported. But that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't do anything or that you could just do random stuff and have the same outcome. So it's a very confusing time for a clinician when they're in the middle of this limbo between the old way and let's say the new way and finding how to merge those two worlds without throwing everything out from the old way. Like there are still certain things that we could pull from the old literature that holds true, but there's a lot that challenges pre-existing beliefs. And that was a really difficult time as a clinician. What did you do after, so you had these four years at this outpatient clinic and you left and you were having this kind of like crisis around what is PT? What am I even doing? Is any of this, was this even like valid or helpful for these people and kind of trying to move forward? Like, what did you do next to kind of overcome that, I guess? Because that's a lot. That's a lot to go through. You just finished a ton of school. You just worked for a long time and helped a lot of people or so you thought. Like now, now what is, how do you overcome that? And I was double board certified. So I earned my, this was before there were residencies. So I earned those through the old way, which was harder. (laughs) And the, uh, you know, so I had my OCS and my SCS within three years of of graduating. I think Mm I, no, two and four years after, because I did the first one at two year mark and I failed in year three. And then I got it year four. For the second one so i did i have double board certified and a lot of that stuff was really cool because it was more around like x-ray like you know imaging and rules around stuff and it was really trying to be progressive to set our profession up for independence so that i would say that that actually did contribute to my freeing of like oh i'm not just a glorified massage therapist you know there's there's a decision making paradigm that is my skill set but still where that decision-making paradigm landed was very confusing time. So to answer your question, I went into business myself because I realized that that was the only way I was ever going to be in full control of the way I treated the, I had always loved business. I had a fond, you know, feeling about it. I always thought it was cool. I never had like these pre-existing beliefs around it that like you trade your life for it. There's a lot of people who believe things about business based off of like one or two people in their lives who may have destroyed their life because they didn't know how to run a business. But to me, it was always like this pathway to freedom. And uh, I made the leap and I was like, we're never buying an ultrasound machine. We're going to have one stim unit because I believe that some people in high levels of pain and post-op and there's certain uses for it, but that this clinic was going to be created revolving around what people truly need first and then we will figure out how to monetize that as opposed to saying okay here's my list of codes what am i going to do which is how nearly every other clinic i'd ever come across is structured at the roots even if their culture is really good the culture could be strong and they could love their patients 
both the roots of the mechanics of the way they operate is insurance centric, billing centric, productivity centric. It, it's just an extension of the old system, just a little bit nicer skin on top of it. Yeah. And so you, did you open up your own practice immediately? Like you were the, yes. working for four years and then you're like, oh, time for my own practice. And you opened it like the next day or what happened there? Yeah. And it wasn't right at the four year mark. I would say that's when this existential crisis started. Okay. And then I launched my first business in 2015. So it was really about six years that, uh, that that happened. And in the, in the last phase of my career at that employer, uh, things were better because I had to open the clinic under their umbrella. So it wasn't mine. I didn't have ownership, but I was in more control and, you know, there was at least some back and forth of like, I don't know if I believe in this anymore, but it did get to a break point where I had to just leave. Uh, I did launch a clinic within weeks of quitting. I also did take a in-school job where actually it wasn't in school. It's where you go to people's kids' homes and do evaluations. Oh. And the only reason I took that was because it was the highest paying per hour job I could find. And I had two kids at the time. I was buried in debt. So there's a longer backstory, which I don't, I don't know if we have time for in this call, but the, the story is I made some, you know, my dad had passed away when I was 27 and uh, died in front of me. He had a heart attack in front of me and I, I had, didn't have the coping skills that I wished I had or that I do have now. And I went down a bad path and I made a lot of mistakes. And uh, as a result of those mistakes, I was $200,000 in debt had to sell my home. And that was that 200K was after having sold my home. And there's just layers and layers of, of uh, despair. And that's actually what kept me in that previous job so long is because like, how could I possibly quit when I'm buried under this much debt? But then it reached a breaking point. And I said, I could, I could do this. I will figure it out. And I, you know, I was a grown man at that age. I was six, I was uh, 60. I was, I was 30 years old. And I went and asked my mom permission. I was like, mom, I want to quit. I'm going to launch a business. I have this idea of going direct to consumer, no MDs at all. You know, it's going to be all about the patients. And uh, I've got two gyms lined up that are interested in the idea where we're going to keep their people like in-house, not let them get to these shitty providers. I was like, but I have to let you know, I only have two months left of savings. And if I fail, I'm going to need to move my family here. So I can't do it on my own with knowing that that repercussion could take on to you. And she was like, do you believe in it? I said, yes. Should you believe in yourself? I said, yes. Should do it. So I I had done two weeks worth of this torturous job of going to these kids' houses, not because the kids weren't awesome. It was that system is beyond broken. It was just this massive paperwork that didn't give a shit about the kids at all. You know, maybe it did get the kids what they needed sometimes, but long story short, I was like, this is not my purpose. This is not what I was on this earth to do. This is a way to make money. I I quit that and just went to these two gyms and it just took off from there, to be honest with you. It was, um, you know, I'll fast forward the story and then we could go back and, and you could dig into the little points. But within three months, I had hired another physical therapist. Within five or six months, I'd opened up more locations. By year five, it was actually year four, four years and four months later, we had five locations, 50 employees, and we did sell that for a multi-million dollar exit. And that was in 2019, which was just coincidentally right before the pandemic. 
to which I then launched an online and a hybrid model, hybrid meaning combining in-person and digital elements, and just was very lucky to be ahead of the curve of what the world needed. Uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, I'll, I'll pause there and we can go back to wherever you want to dig into next. That was so much. I don't know where I want to start, but that was incredible. Like I got chills when you had talked about you asking your mom and, you know, really that's a lot, that's a lot emotionally. And to be in that space and for her to say that if you believe in it, go for it. And for you to go for it and be here right now is really, really inspiring. Yeah. So, I thank her every couple of months for that. You, yeah, you really should. <laughs> yeah, like, parenting, grade A parenting right there for, for adult male yeah, you know, to, to to need to ask that, but I really did. I did need to ask her because it would have been wrong for me to take that risk, knowing it could have had those repercussions. Of course. But, uh, what it hits on, and what I think a lot of students, new grads, they don't believe in themselves, mm -hmm. the most core level, because and related to a lot of this uncertainty. You know, I, I'm a doctor, but I'm fraud is what mm -hmm. a lot of people say. I'm an imposter because. I don't even know what works or if I'm helping or if not, and how could I possibly go into business myself or how could I possibly quit this job? I just took it. And a lot of it is rooted in belief in self. You know? And I think that the system has become predatory on this. The system needs healthcare providers to remain vulnerable in order to exploit them. And when you have true belief in self, that means you can say, no, this job is, they lied to me. I don't care that it looks bad on my resume. They, when I interview next, they will see me for me and I care about my patients. I'm dedicated to this profession. I will give this company my all. And you quit. You don't start lying to yourself and saying, oh, this is just how it is. Or, you know, everybody else deals with it. Or, you know what? I just got to get to one year this way. My resume is clear. Nobody gives a shit. I've hired I don't know, what was it, 20 PTs and probably more than that with some degree of churn over the four years. Like the reality is, is that I looked at their character, I looked at their, their personal skills. I looked at all these other things. And if somebody said to me, I left that job because it didn't align my values, I'd be like, this is somebody I, I want. What are your values? Tell me. And it, that, that actually elevates you. And then for those of you who can't find a place that aligns with your values, we are in a state of this profession where, yeah, it's unfair, but some of you are going to need to become entrepreneurs, even though you don't want to be. That's just the way it is right now. I do believe that we are in a, every market, if you look at all markets, they, they go through these consolidation phases where they basically uh, combine, right? So think of like all the big players in healthcare, like there's Health South that was like huge in the 90s. I don't know if mm -hmm. you know that. Yes. And then they got broken up and destroyed basically for illegal stuff. When they got broken up, they were the one of the largest PT providers in the in the United States. That's where a lot of the employers that spun off from. That's where I worked as a as a aide is people who said, "I'm done with Health South. I'm going to start my own little thing." Then what ended up happening is all these successful little things started getting bought up by venture capital money, which mm -hmm. is where we're at now. So there's very few good quality large independent owners. Once you get successful enough, you sold to a venture capitalist. So that means there's investors behind it, which means fundamentally, most cases, the client is no longer the patient, the client is the investors. So right now, what we're in is actually, uh, we're at the peak and maybe on the other end of the bell curve of the consolidation phase, where now we have these massive mega players all around the United States. 
And what needs to happen is more one-offs start splicing away to restart the cycle again and hopefully do the cycle entirely differently this time. But the reality is, is we need the next wave of employers to come up because there's not enough spots. There are not enough spots for everybody. So it is employment is um, being an employer, being an entrepreneur is a skill, is a skill like every other skill in the world that can be learned, it can be taught, it can be relayed. This thing has been going on, this thing called business has been going on since the beginning of human language. There are certain universal principles that you can learn and you can do it and you can have a great life while doing it. But a lot of that really hinges on that very first thing, which is belief in self. Can we dive into the belief in self, but also the belief in self who maybe this is the student who wants to go into entrepreneurship or feels forced to go into entrepreneurship? Is this kind of what you're doing now online? Like, what are you doing in the online space? Yeah. So what we do is we help people launch online and hybrid businesses. The cool thing about what we do is there's no copy and paste system. Most business coaching, which I don't identify as a business coach, I'll explain that in a minute. But most business coaching in our profession is just teaching a copy and paste, kind of like a McDonald's you know, style. Here's how you do it. Here's the system. Here's the routine. You, know, you go to a gym, you set up a table, you pay them some rent, you do a workshop, you sell a bunch of high ticket sessions. It's actually so simple. I don't know why anybody even needs to pay for it, but for some reason people <laughs> do. Um, you could probably Google everything you need to launch a cash business right now. You'd just sell your sessions for money. And, um, but the reality is, is that I don't believe that serves the clinician long-term. I don't believe that leads to a fulfilling career. And I don't believe that's what actually serves the population. Very few people are willing to or able to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on rehab nor do they truly need that much one-on-one time. Most of the world, now I'm not talking about immediate post-op, I'm not talking about somebody who got hit by a car last week. Most of the United States who need physical therapy never actually see a physical therapist. I don't know if you've seen those stats, but it's alarming how low the consumption rate is of physical therapy. Yet we have our professional organization saying, uh, overstock of physical therapists is coming. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? We have an underutilization of physical therapists, not an overstock of physical therapists. But we we are not actually getting to the people who are who are in need of us. And the people who are in need, the bulk of them, 80 to 90% of the population, it's either low-level chronic, persistent, or lower-level acute pain at the top of the medicalization cycle. What that means is, slight low back pain, uh, I'll just rest for a month. We know where this goes. They gain weight. They never fully make it back, become cyclical. They get diabetes, hypertension. Now they're in the they're in the downward medicalization spiral. And a lot of that comes from very easy to resolve orthopedic issues if they had gotten the right care first. That person with a very mild knee pain or a mild persistent low back pain they also don't usually want to spend three hours a week inside of a clinic, especially when that time is, is viewed as, by most people, low value. I'm alone with a band doing something that I don't understand where a kid comes over to me and says what to do next. Why would, like, why would anybody do that for three times a week? So now you take this, this concept of the hybrid, which is, I think, where most people want to go and should go which is where you blend in-person with digital delivery mechanisms. This is not selling sessions here and selling programming here. This is instead coming up with like a unique process for a specific niche of a type of person, like either a psychographic profile, the way somebody identifies, like identify as a combat athlete or a new mom. 
You know, it could be any type of thing that they identify or a problem. So that could be uh, you know, specializing in shoulder rotator cuff specific issues. And you, you're the go-to for that for a whole bunch of different psychographics. Or you could be the incontinence expert for all sorts of different female type problems. Like there's not only just post-birth that that, that, that happens too, right? That's, there's also menopausal types of issues and all these other things. So you could either go identity first or problem first. But when you go in now, you could say, what do they need? What do they really need? And you can start to come up with a framework for how you solve that person's problem that can be repeated over time. And you start to then get paid on the outcomes of a process you create instead of just how many sessions you sell. And yes, you can include some sessions, but we're not hinging the value on you're paying for my time. You're paying for this process I've created for this type of person with this problem. And now what this does is two things. It allows for demonetization. Demonetization is the progressive lowering of cost over of a service or a good over the course of time. And it also allows for clinicians to have less time in the clinic, which allows for them to have just the normal time to take care of themselves, their relationships, their families, their health, which then allows them to pour into their caseload even further. It's this very complementary cycle. That is what I do. And that's what I believe is the future of healthcare. And this is how your business was built, your your clinic, I mean, back when you left the outpatient clinic, you went into, you made kind of a hybrid model? So initially, no. Okay. I'm very transparent about this is that business is an iterative process. Even now, the way you launch your business will not be what it looks like in one year. Right. So the way we teach business is is based off of Silicon Valley style, which is it's called minimum viable product. What that means is you launch with like just enough tangibility and then you finish the actual, I shouldn't even say finish, you iterate that with the co-creative feedback from your, your, your people. So I'll give you a very specific example. In 2019, I launched a business called Counter-Strike. I thought it was going to be injury prevention and mobility for fighters, like literally fighters, like mm-hmm. UFC fighters, kickboxers, jujitsu. And I thought it was going to be mobility wad for fighters. I got five, 10 fighters on there and it was more focused on mobility and more focused on like injury prevention. And they were like, Hey Frank, uh, man, I'm like, I feel like I don't have knockout power. I, I just always get overpowered. Can you help with that? I'm like, Oh, I mean, I am CSCS. So I know strength training. I was like, uh, yeah, I go, you know, it's not what I specialize in, but you down, if I make this program for you, you just stay really in touch with me. And what I'm going to do is start educating myself on best practices. And then like, let's have this feedback loop. We'll meet every couple of weeks, see how it's going. We'll make it better and better. Those five, 10 people, most of them loved it. They're like, this is awesome. Can you keep doing this? Then somebody's like, hey, do you know anything about heart rate, monitor, you know, heart rate based conditioning? No, not at all. But let's get a heart rate monitor. And you cool if we do some experiments with you. People, and it's fully transparent. Like now there's certain things, obviously in the, in the realm of like, uh, you know, some extreme orthopedic condition, like you're not going to test as much there, but the chances are most of you are called to serve a population. It's not life or death. And that you can identify which clients really love the stuff of co-creation and just be transparent. Like, no, but I would love to use you as a patient. I found this course. I'm going to take it right now. And then we're going to implement it. And next thing you know, I was like, man, this platform's awesome. Now, now the platform is Hari based conditioning, uh, sport-specific strength training for combat athletes, plus injury prevention and mobility. 
And then now this thing just starts taking off. So the we teach that same principle. Now, in retrospect, I didn't know this principle. This is like what I discovered through the building of my own business. I launched saying, I'm not dealing with MDs and I am not dealing with like putting coding and billing first. That's like all I had in my mind. So I'm going to do whatever they need. And that's that. Then slowly I started to be like, okay, man, nobody does any home exercise program. Like the, the notion of a home exercise program is the biggest joke there is that no one freaking does it. No one does it. I don't care. They're all lying to you. There's like one crazy guy who does it. That's it. Everybody else is lying to you. So I was like, there's got to be a better way. Lo and behold, there's lots of technology. It's readily available where you could pay $10 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, depending on what you want to plug into your skill set. And now all of a sudden I had like a behavior tracker where I'd be like, did you do your home exercise program? And when they'd come in for their session, let's say they were coming in once a week, I'd be like, hey, what the hell? You know, <laughs> I wouldn't just do that. I'd be like, hey, everything okay? Like personally, everything's good? Yeah, 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 let's go. Family's good, work's good? Yeah, yeah. Now I have permission to coach hard. You just lost your out because they have no idea about, what the hell, bro? What the hell? You didn't do anything. Do you want your back to get better? You, you sure? Why? Tell me why. I want you to say it out loud. Say it out loud. I want to hear it so I could run with my kids again. Okay. So what are we going to do differently this week to get you two of those sessions in or whatever it is I'm having them do on their own? And that was when I started to realize, wow, the value is not just in the session. The value is what I'm doing between sessions, but I'm not technically getting paid for that yet. So if I do do that in the current system where you either just take money for a session or insurance reimbursement for a session, then you're technically doing more work for less money. I was like, that's got to change. And that's when we started to come up with specialty programs, niche-based specialty programs inside that overarching business. So we had like running programs and women's health programs. And then that then started to evolve into my belief that each one of those programs could technically be their own standalone business, especially given the power and the tools of the internet. And now you help so many people reiterate that process for themselves. Yeah. yeah. 600, nearly 600. I think it's still in the 500s, but 500 plus clinicians through the program in the last three years. And it's a 12 week incubator style program. This is not a mastermind. There's no feel good trips to the snowy mountains where we <laughs> sing Kubaya. This is a step-by-step -step process that teaches people how to launch a business. All of it is reverse engineered to each person's unique beliefs and, and goals. So there's no like, here's what you do, uh, copy and paste thing. Instead, it's prompts and coaching moments to help uncover like, who's your ideal population? Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you need help with that. Sometimes you experiment and you change it. Then how do we, which problems of theirs are we going to focus in on? What tools and methods of delivery can we use to solve those problems? Can it be fully digital? Can it be 90% digital, 10% person? Can it be 50-50? Can it be... 90% in-person and 10% digital, depending on what you want, what we call your life design to look like. Life design is some of you want to travel. Some of you want to have kids. Some of you want to travel and have kids. Some of you want to live you know, different places in the world for three, six months at a time. Some of you just want to be by your parents to take care of them in an older phase of life. It doesn't matter, but you, you need to know that to reverse engineer the business decisions so that your the mechanics of your business aligns with the desired lifestyle. And then when we cross-reference all of that, you lead with a model and we then teach you how to market and sell that model using your authentic voice, no nocebo language to try to get scared, you know, patients, no scare tactics. And uh, you're doing it in a way that really feels good and is fun and exciting to get your first few clients. 
what is what was that transition from you went from treating clinically even in your own business to more coaching and helping other people do that yeah so in my first nine months as a business owner in 2015 i had worked myself out of a primary treating role so at the nine month mark i had, I had hired another therapist who officially replaced me and then i would basically my job was training the other ther the therapists that i hired managing the relationships with the gyms that I was inside of, creating the marketing and the sales processes for the business. So I started working on the business and less in the business, which is why I was able to build it enough to be able to sell it. Most PTs are just trapped inside their own business. And that means that you're your own boss. You're an employee to yourself uh, in a way. And it might not make sense, but there's, there's a difference when you're working on the business, you own the business, and then just being the everything inside the business. Um, and that's why I also started to realize that my ability to create programs and my ability to guide the direction of the business was my actual best skill set. Uh, but I've never left clinical life. So Counter-Strike continues to scale today. We have 100 plus athletes around the world uh, in, in our program. Some of them are UFC fighters. Some of them are recreational moms and dads who just love kickboxing. But it's a scaled out program uh, platform inside uh, Counter-Strike into a couple of different programs. We have a we have a strength coach in Italy. We've got another coach here in Florida. We've got relationships with physical therapists and mental health providers. So I take a lot of pride in, I think, being one of the only business experts who you could literally watch still scale businesses. Um, and my business partner and I have investments and strategic partners in clinical businesses as well. So we are inside the ecosystems of some of the names that you might know already uh, helping them grow their businesses to be the next wave of employers, because that, that is something that I really feel committed to. I love that. And that's really cool. So what does a week in the life of you look like now? So much time outside, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so I wake up usually around 6, 6.30 or so, not a hard time on that. And uh, the first thing I do is read and do some mindset exercises. I do believe that positive self-talk and a lot of my roots from that psychology degree I talked about still stay. And I believe that my overarching philosophy is that tactics to the exponent of mindset equals outcomes. So it's like tactics to the little m equals outcomes. What that means is, you know, especially watching 500 plus clinicians through the program, I don't misrepresent. There's a bell curve. Everybody else wants to make sound like everybody just becomes a millionaire instantly. Like, no, that's not how it works. Some people struggle. We help them. We support them. They figure it out if they stay with it. A lot of people hit middle ground of success. They start making three to five grand a month, five to 10 grand a month, somewhere in that realm. And then the other side of the bell curve, they make 10, 20, 30, $40,000 a month, sometimes with no employees with very little overhead. And what's fascinating about this, just from my bird's eye view of this bell curve, I'm like, they're all getting the same exact tactics. I'm not teaching. You know, the Tommy who made $40,000 a month you know, and is consistently averaging between twenty dollars and $35,000 a month, he didn't learn anything different than this person. And sometimes it'll be in the same exact niche. I'm like, and, and they don't have different uh, followers on social media, same amount of followers. One didn't start with more money. And I was like, it's the mindset. It's the mindset that they're bringing to the tactics. Now, where this goes wrong, you might have seen this in some other coaches, is that they become just obsessed with mindset and it's just like guru, like meditate it, attract it to you and it will come type stuff. But 
that's not, you know, it's the tactics to explore of the mindset. So I start my day working on my mindset every single day. That's my, that is my goal. Then I move into taking care of my body. I get outside, I exercise, and then it's three to four hours of focused work, a lunch break, another two to three hours of focused work. And I try to be done by four or five, most days of the week, sometime soon. And are you working? Some people, obviously the misconception around being a business owner is you just work all the time. So how many hours a week are you actually working then like 40 or less? 30 to 35. Yeah. Now I want to make sure you know that's learned through pain. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why we sold that original business is because I built it wrong. I built it the, with me still needing to drive to all those locations I had created. So I had five locations, 50 employees. There was not necessarily the mid-level management needed for that size company. There also wasn't a margin for it. It's like, that's a big company, but it's not big, big. You know, like that's big compared to small business, but it's not like, oh, I have a regional manager. So it was me and my business partner in the car all the time, going to these different locations, meeting with gym owners, meeting with us, trying to, so I was like, we just like, man, I'm not enjoying this anymore. And that's when we did the reset. And it was this amazing opportunity to say, what do I really want life to look like at this super granular level? And I had just, and it started with silly things. Like I don't want to work on my kids' birthdays. That's not silly. I shouldn't say it. Small things though. Like that's a tiny detail in retrospect. Like, it's a tiny, tiny detail. I was like, I just started writing it down. I, was like, I don't want to work on my kids' birthdays ever. I don't want to have to drive to anything in this business on a regular basis. So all of a sudden I started lining up these constraints of what I don't want. Then I started looking at what I do want. And that's actually where the life design exercise was born because I made it for myself. I was like, oh, I'm going back into business. I love business. And I saw phases of the growth of that first business where I had total freedom, you know, weeks of vacation and tons of money that I would never have made uh, as a staff PT. But I also then made some decisions at certain points that handcuffed me to the business even more. So now I, anytime I, before I go into a venture, even right now we're exploring a partnership with this company that I think is going to be huge. And I'm potentially taking over a small minority ownership. The number one thing I'm looking at is not how much money I'm going to make from it. Potentially the number one I'm making sure is that I'm not spending more time in it than I want to. And that it doesn't come with more obligations than I want in the longer term. So once I really designed my life design, I realized, okay, I'm only going to, to have digital and mostly digital hybrid locations. You know, so for the year and a half before COVID, I was doing eval only hybrid. This is where you go to a location, do a bunch of evals, and then all of their follow-up care is digital. And I would sell that, let's say, 90-day plan of care for most people. Sometimes it'd be six months, sometimes it'd be two months. But the reality was is that most people do need follow-up. They don't need your hands. They don't need your like direct time. They need asynchronous care or pre-filmed education, habit tracking, programming in some capacity to do either the correctives or the rehab, whatever words you use for the things you do. And uh, I just kept cross-referencing every single decision. Does this impact my life design? Yes or no. And one of the things is I have anybody who gets attracted to the field of psychology means they're a little fucked up, right? <laughs> That's why you go into that field is you're like, I don't think I'm right. So I'm going to do this to try to figure myself out uh, under the guise of me learning about how to help other people. 
And then in the process, you do learn how to help other people, but only if you've learned to help yourself. And I realized that for me, I need to be outside a lot. I need to exercise a lot. I need to spend time reading. And I burn out very quickly, which is why I'm so passionate about burnout. I could burn out by Wednesday. You know, I could have a great weekend, work my ass off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and be fried, have nothing left for my kids. My daughter's 10. She's not going to be around, you know, in the house much longer, six, seven years if she goes away to college. And I'm not giving her the leftovers of my energy anymore. So I've reverse engineered the way to run my business so that I have all these energy fulfilling things in the morning and a relaxed pace, even though I'm intense with my goals and what I do, I do intensely, but it's more of a relaxed pace. And then I have a disconnect period of time so I could get out of work mode. So when I show up for my family, they're not getting the, the pretend present Frank that's really cycling through all the things about work and what to do next and feeling behind and stuck and all these other things. And that does still happen occasionally. I'm not superhuman. There are times where I'm in the business and I can't stop thinking about it. That's true. But more often than not, though, I am able to follow these routines and force the business to succeed under the constraints of what I want my life to look like. And it was Interesting scheduling with you too, because you made that a point when we were scheduling this episode. I forgot about that. <laughs> you made it a point. And I was like, wow, yeah. that's really cool. Because for me, um, I'm working full time. So normally I do interviews on Sundays. And you were like, nah, I don't work on the weekends. <laughs> and I was like, good for him, because I love the life design um, concept as well. And I, I did this in probably grad school and undergrad too. I think it's so important. So I think that's really cool that you brought that up. Students, in PT school, don't make time to do that very often. It's true. And there's lots of really good valid excuses not to, mm-hmm. that you can no longer lean on as a crutch because it could be 10 minutes of movement. It could be five pages. It could be saying, no, at lunch, I go for a walk. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to grab a smoothie. I'm going to drink it while I walk. You know, there's you, you may have to get creative about how to implement it during different phases of life. So I have three kids. I'm not going to lie that during our most re- my youngest is three, that was a crazy time. But I knew that in order for me to be there for him and be there for his mother, like, yeah, I had to wake up a little bit earlier to be able to then go do my things. But this the, the actual, actually, I would love to hook you guys up with a training that's from inside the curriculum. This is not something we give away. It's called uh, Own Your Week. And it's basically a time management strategy system of how to use Google Calendar in like what order to to block things off with. And most people are like, oh, so expecting me to tell them like block off your revenue generating activities first, like, you know, or Uh, it's always mental health and physical health first. Mm -hmm. So I think it would really serve your audience um, and there's no opt-in. I'll just give you the link. It's it, it's a direct link from from our training, and it'll, it'll give you a a really good tactical way to approach schedule management, and also the way to approach balancing your career, where you no longer need to believe what I think is an overcorrection from grind theory. So in the 2015 to 2020, the grinded out theory of business was the prevalent mode of operating. And then 2020, we all burnt out. We all got fried. And then it switched where it's like, don't grind. And almost like if you have ambition, you're made to feel bad. 
or you feel bad for making other people feel bad that that you have a goal or something like that. And uh, the overcorrection to the grind theory is that uh, it's hard to describe, but I just know that this training is the antidote to it because it's talking about how to balance your career goals in a way where they are no longer at odds with your personal goals in your personal life. But instead, the constraints from each actually power each other. Instead of saying, no, I don't subscribe to grind theory. So that means I am going to stay in this job as an employee because I'm not going to grind. I'm like, well, you don't have to. You don't have to. You shouldn't have to. Now, that might mean, though, that you have to become a master at schedule management, though. So there's these traits, and that's a skill. How do you start with all skills? You suck at them. Most people, they give up on time management very quickly because they don't actually have, one, a framework to follow, or two, a feedback loop for, with themselves to actually iterate and improve it. They just give up. So I, I think that would, could really serve your audience. Yeah, I would appreciate that. I'll put it in the link in the description of uh, the podcast and when it's up on Facebook too, you guys can check it out. Um, that's, it sounds like something I wish I would have had in the beginning of PT school. Um, it, it would have saved a lot of mental well-being, <laughs> uh, especially with long study hours and such. So thank you. I appreciate that. No problem. And for anybody who's going to actually watch it, you will need to contextualize because I talk about business, replace that with school, right? So there's yeah. the, the theory, listen for the theories and the principles and don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because I say X, Y, Z. And they, yeah, there's going to be certain things in your schedule that you're not under control of. What we're talking about is all the rest of the space. So mm -hmm. there's what's the there's a book, great book called uh, 176 Hours. Is that right? 184. I'm so bad with math. I have no idea. <laughs> it's however many hours there are in a week. And when you really look at how many hours there are in a week, you're like, holy shit. I have no excuse. <laughs> like there's, mm -hmm. You know, even with PT school, even with all these obligations, until you are mastering your calendar, you are leaving it up to chance where, where you go in life and your career. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know um, it can feel like PT school is an excuse. Um, but honestly, like you said, it's not. You got a lot of hours in the week, guys. So go ahead and listen, watch it. And it will be replaced by something else. So I've I've literally watched people for years go from PT school as the main excuse to saving up for a house, a wedding, mm -hmm. a baby, and now they're in their mid thirties and they're they're literally handcuffed to a job that they they can't leave. You know, mm -hmm. so the the time to take risks is younger in your career and calculated. It doesn't mean you have to be reckless, but the time to take the greatest calculated risk you can afford to take is in the younger years before you start getting the golden handcuffs on which is where you start that expression means like let's say you buy a house that requires a four thousand dollar monthly budget for just household stuff on top of the other things on top of travel that means you need to take home let's say 8k into your bank account between you and your partner much different position to launch not impossible because i did it but much different position than launching when you're like well, if I make a thousand dollars, I cover my expenses. Like, you know, it's, just, it's just a much, yeah, it's a much healthier place to launch a business. It is. It is. Um, for all the students who are listening and um, have had so many takeaways already, but if you had to give yourself one piece of advice, maybe not yourself, let's give a current PT student, actually a current yeah. PT student, one piece of advice that you haven't said yet. What would you tell them? Freedom first, clinical freedom time-based freedom, financial freedom, 
if you if you really put those things past those past all decisions through those things the, the the do i have clinical freedom in this job yes or no no move on you know there's literally hundreds and hundreds of options for you most people don't actually explore enough they just go to like five or ten and think that that's it so but put freedom first and when you get older and i'll i know we're in the last minutes here but i've had a lot of exposure to death there's been multiple people in my family who've had cancer um somebody very tight with me is uh got diagnosed with stage four cancer for the fourth time she had stage three, then stage four, three times in her forties. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm only 37. I know I look a lot older because my white beard, <laughs> but because of those near death experiences from people near me, it, I'm grateful because I get to look back now in a different way. I look at life very differently. And a lot of people don't get those close to them, close to home near death experiences until happens to them much later in life freedom in every way will be what you wish you had had when those final moments come so prioritize them now thank you for sharing that that was that was great um for students who want to reach out to you and don't know where where should they reach out to you i'll give you two ways you could follow me on instagram which is where i'm personally active if you dm me there it's actually me uh it's frank underscore benedetto and then if you want to take advantage of this huge library of free trainings, we have a, fr a free Facebook group that, I mean, I have I, over the past two and a half years, probably 30 or 40 free trainings in there on a whole bunch of different topics. I go pretty deep because my philosophy is to wow you with the free stuff so that you just naturally one day wonder what it's like to work with us for real. Uh, so the free stuff is really good, really moves the needle, and we pour a lot into it. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Frank. It was a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much. Awesome. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the PT Student Center. If you could leave a review, it would mean the world to me. It helps spread the word about the podcast so more people can actually get on their way to getting through PT school on their first try debt-free. If you want to know more about the PT Student Center, go and check us out at ptstudentcenter.com and on the socials at PT Student Center.